uh, in Colossians chapter 1, why don't we read God's word, uh, and then we will go through it together. Uh, Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Colossians 1, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Uh, Pray with me. Father, as we turn to your word, would you use this truth, this passage, this portion of scripture to uh, stir up our affections for Jesus, that we would love Christ more, be devoted to him more deeply, and God, that we would also uh, seek to live a life that would model uh, that which is rooted to Christ, that even as we seek to love Christ, we recognize that Christ has promised and is dwelling in all of those whom he loves. And so it's by his power and his grace that we will achieve anything for you. And so, Lord, would you help us in that as we turn to your word now and make it fruitful to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, it's really, really good to be back with all of you after a few weeks uh, away. Uh, Some of it was traveling, but most of it was baby-related, and that baby is with us now. Uh, if you've seen the baby's name written out, it's A-L-I-A-H. Um, she's, she tells the truth. She's not Aliyah. She's Aaliyah. And so um, she actually doesn't say anything yet. But um, she's trying, and she smiles at me every single morning. And so I feel really special about it. Um, and she also smiles at the wall. So I don't know. Um, I'm, just, I'm just trying to keep up. Uh, but we are super, super stoked about having Aaliyah with us now. In fact, I, I do have a few f- photos of her. I think I can, I can put them up there. What's, do we got baby Aaliyah on there? Where's just baby Aaliyah? Just a, just a fat baby. Just throw her on there. You got it. That's it right there. Yep. That's it. Kind of looks like a baby. It almost looks like a baby. It will look like a baby. No, it's it's coming. See, this is the it's, remember the mystery that was to be revealed. It's you're all wondering what it looks like. If you have an Instagram account, you've already seen it. Um, if you don't, you will behold it shortly. We think um, it's okay. Maybe maybe it's not meant for us to see her today. Maybe you know it's kind of like Paul with the Colossians. Uh, he actually never saw them face to face. He wished he could see them face to face, and so maybe that's all that we need to wait for. We just need to wait for the moment that we can all behold baby Aaliyah face to face, which for me will be in a few hours. Okay, well, she's not up there yet. Uh, we'll see if she makes her way there any, any moment soon. If you were to see her, you would recognize she is beautiful, 
like her dad, and she's, <laughs> um, she, is, she is the most awesome little creature. We, we love Aaliyah, um, and at home right now, it's honestly been so much fun. Our oldest three, Emariah, Ezra, and Nemo, are all very much so enjoying this new stage of life. They found something that is utterly entertaining to them, and it's called a baby, and so um, we've just been enjoying it immensely. It's been uh, such a, a huge joy for our family on this side of it uh, to finally hold her and see her and kiss her and just uh, be with her and now experience the joy uh, that comes from having a baby. Um, and as you know, and as I've kind of already alluded to, uh, going into that process is uh, not always the easiest thing. And so having that baby is something I had no part in. That's all my wife's work. Um, and that was nine months of actually difficulty and pain and struggle. And then finally delivering a baby, which we don't need to get to many details of what that looks like. Um, but that's hard work. That's really, really hard work. And on this side of it, our family is experiencing much joy because of finally welcoming uh, the one that we've long awaited for. And she's more beautiful than we could have imagined. But leading up to that, especially for my wife, there was a particular difficulty. Now look at it. There she is. I knew it. Yeah, now you're, no one's listening anymore because they see the baby. There she is. Yeah, that's Aaliyah. She's so happy to be held there. Um, face of confusion but also delight. Yeah, Amariah is a, a mom through and through, so she's loving this stage. Um, what else do you got back there? Do you got other pictures, or do we... It's okay if you don't. I mean, Amariah is honestly... That's, that's a great smile. I just love that girl. Her two front teeth are growing back in. We're excited about that. Um, we can... If, if, you don't, if you don't got more pictures, that's okay. We can, we can forego the photo thing because it's turning my introduction into more of a... A forty-minute sonnet, and I didn't. I didn't mean for that to happen. Yeah, no, we can. We can forego the pictures. The point was, and as you saw, we had a cute baby. Um, but getting to the point of having a cute baby is a long and difficult process, uh, especially for my wife. Um, it's something that I would never be able to resonate with, and something I would never be able to experience. But getting to this side of having a baby is really fun. But the process in getting there is not so fun. And even though I could tell you that I don't know what that experience is like, it's actually pretty interesting that Paul, as he thinks about ministry, uh, Paul uses that very idea, that very season of life, the privilege and the joys that come with having a baby to describe what ministry is actually like for him. And it's truly what ministry should be like for all of those who seek to serve Christ. It's something that takes much effort in order to see something that brings much fruit. Um, Paul's aim in this church and Paul's aim throughout his ministry was to leave everything out on the line, to give every effort that he had, to make every uh, effort possible to see Christ formed in the lives of those people to whom he ministered to. And again, Paul does so in a way that would even reflect the same things that my family's enjoyed over the last couple of weeks. In writing to a, another church, in Galatia, Paul uses this very imagery to describe just how much he wants to see Christ formed in that church. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, he says that again, he's in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. 
That's a pretty interesting statement to make. And the point that Paul is making in that is to say it is something that requires lots of effort. It's something that even requires much suffering in order to see God's work happen in God's people in God's way. And Paul's point is not to complain about it, but Paul's point is to say, I am willing to undergo all of that for the sake of you. That's what we get to see even as we look at Colossians 1, 24 to 29 this morning. We see the heart of Paul on full display for his people, one that has uh, suffered much for Christ, one that has endured much for Christ, but also one that explains itself as suffering much and enduring much for the sake of Christ's people. It is difficult work to do what God requires us to do. And Paul doesn't shy away from that, and he doesn't use that as a crutch to grow lazy in ministry. Instead, he uses that as the basis to find joy in ministry and to continue in ministry. Because the end goal is greater than any suffering Paul might be experiencing in the moment. If you remember, as Paul sets out to write this letter, it's um, not quite the happiest moment of his life. Paul writes this letter from a prison cell. Paul has already endured so much for the sake of the gospel, and at this point, he is moments away even from even losing his life for the sake of the gospel. And yet what a treasure it is for us that in the midst of his darkest hour, we receive this precious letter. That's how ministry works. God's people undergo much suffering and much trial so that God's people would grow into being what Christ wants them to be. The joys that we've experienced over the last week in welcoming a a new baby girl, it's been awesome and it's reminded me over and over as I prepare to bring this word this morning of the joys that come from ministry, from being at a good and faithful church, from being at a church that cares about Christ and his word, from being at a place where not only do you care about Christ and his word, but you care about his people, And where that takes place, there is a lot of difficulty. It isn't always easy. It isn't always simple. But it is always good. Because the more we give ourselves to the hard work of doing what God requires from us, the more we grow into being what God is making us to be. That's what we will see this morning in Colossians chapter 1. In verses 24 to 29, I want us to look at five aspects of, of true ministry, and even of, you could say, of being a true Christian, uh, so that we could be assured that our lives belong to Jesus. I want us to look at five aspects of true Christianity so that we could know that our lives belong to Jesus. We're going to look at that in a very unique way. Paul is not accustomed to speaking much of himself, but when he does, he talks about how hard life gets. He talks about how hard the work is, and he does so to talk about how great his God is. And so that's what we'll see here in these verses. I want us first to see the joy in suffering for Christ. Uh, What should be true of anyone who seeks to serve Christ and live for Christ is, one, that there would be great joy in suffering for Christ. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up 
what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Now, this is a really interesting point to make, and there's a lot to unpack here. Let's take it one small piece at a time. First, think about the reality that Paul says he rejoices in his sufferings. That seems very uncommon for us. No one desires to suffer, let alone to rejoice in their suffering. How is it that Paul could say not only that he suffers, but he embraces it with joy? Well, he does so because he does so for you. And writing to the Colossians, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. The key tenet to finding joy in suffering for Christ is recognizing that it has an impact on others. In fact, none of us would be sitting in this room if it were not for the great men and women of God throughout the course of history who have suffered for us to sit here with God's word, understanding God's word, knowing God's word, proclaiming God's word, and knowing God in truth. Paul was not alone in that endeavor. You could look through the years and years of church history to see that men and women of faith have suffered greatly for Christ, giving their life even, just so that we could know Christ in truth. And they did that not to make a great name for themselves. They did that so that you would know him. How could you suffer with joy? You can do so because you aren't at the forefront of your life. Paul is grateful for the faith that this church has. He's grateful for the hope and the love that they have bound up in Jesus. Most of all, he's grateful because Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God, he is able to save. And one who recognizes that recognizes they have nothing to offer. They have nothing to bring forward into that redemptive plan of God to boast about. And so Paul is willing to endure anything for the sake of his beloved church because Paul recognizes that their betterment comes from Christ being known, not by him being protected. Paul is willing to endure anything that would make Christ known to God's people as opposed to protecting his own life. I know you and I don't struggle with suffering in the same way that Paul is talking about here. In fact, Paul endured suffering in ways that are unimaginable to us. Paul was beaten more often for the gospel than any of us would ever care to be, right? Not only so, Paul was beaten so badly for the gospel that one time they even thought he was dead already and the guy was not dead and had to endure much more for the gospel thereon after. Paul endured shipwreck. Paul endured being bitten by a venomous snake and being protected by God in that. Paul endured imprisonments. Paul endured all sorts of things for the sake of the gospel. You and I have yet to face And it isn't for us to then think of that and try to minimize the things that we go through for the gospel. But it is a way and it is an encouragement to be reminded that everything we endure for the gospel has a purpose. And not only that, but everything we endure for the gospel is absolutely worth it. Why did Paul endure so much for the sake of the gospel? I think it's because he endured it 
bearing the name of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 12.10, Paul says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul didn't look for an easy life. Paul didn't look to be liked. Paul didn't look for popularity. Paul didn't look to make a good name for himself amongst other people. Paul didn't look for a a way to uh, share the gospel, yes, but hope that people would still uh, appreciate him in the process. No, Paul says for him to know Christ was most significant than anything else. And for him, the sake of, for the sake of Christ, it was worth enduring all sorts of calamities. If in that, he was consistently removed out the picture and Christ was consistently made known to be strong. And so this is why Paul, in this letter, though he's never seen this church face to face, he writes them this letter, rejoicing even in his present suffering because it brings benefit to them. Now he says something interesting here. The joy that he has in suffering for Christ, it's coupled with this. And in my flesh, verse 24, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. That's a really interesting statement, right? Because if Paul's basis for suffering for them is Jesus... And the Jesus that he presents to them is the one that we've already seen in verses 15 to 23, one who is both supreme and sufficient. How could Paul say that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, we would understand, I think, very quickly, it isn't that there's something lacking in what Christ has done for us. We know that to be true because of the very words Christ declares on the cross. When Jesus dies and gives his life as a ransom for many, the very thing he declares is, it is finished. And so when Paul says he's filling up the, what lacks in the afflictions of Christ, it isn't that Paul is uh, filling up something that Jesus couldn't do for us. And in fact, it has nothing to do with how Jesus saves us. So Paul must be speaking about something else. Paul is saying, I am filling up Christ's sufferings in so much as I share in suffering for him. That's the point that Paul is making. It isn't that Jesus is insufficient. It's that once you claim Christ, your life will be like Christ. And it isn't just one that's marked by righteousness, it's one that's also marked by suffering. Paul says elsewhere in Scripture that he is glad to bear the marks of Christ in his suffering. And that's the point that Paul makes here. It isn't simply a joy for him to suffer because it's of benefit to other people. It's a joy for him to suffer because when he does, he's reminded of the one who suffered for him. That is Paul's point, and that is where Paul's joy derives from in ministry. That's where Paul's joy derives from in working for Christ and in serving Christ. It's in knowing that even when everything works against him, he most resembles the life of Christ. 
the one who suffered and gave his life for his people. When we suffer, we model after Jesus. And unlike Jesus, we haven't suffered to the point of giving our lives. And we haven't suffered to the point of giving our life in a way that it would actually profit the benefit of someone else's life. And so in turn, what is it to us to give our life to the one who gave his life for us? That is Paul's point. It is a joy for him to extend himself to this church and to these people because in it they grow and in it he looks more like Christ. Each of you have a context by which you get to be like Jesus. Each of you has a place in which you get to display the love and truth that comes from knowing Christ. And maybe it's daunting to you to think that you would have to take some kind of difficulty for that. Maybe it's daunting to you to think that you could be mocked or ridiculed or scorned or made fun of for the sake of Christ. Maybe it's challenging for you to think of, if I were to look like Jesus, people wouldn't like me. And yet that's the whole point, isn't it? Jesus has promised that to us. Jesus has said that if they've hated me, they will hate you also. And so why would we be afraid of the very things that Jesus has promised? It is better to be unloved by the world knowing that you are loved by Christ. And he who is with you will be with you to the end of the age. Paul is able to do that because Paul's focus is not on himself, but it's on Christ. Paul has a joy as it comes to suffering for the sake of Christ, because secondly, he understands the privilege it is to serve Christ, the privilege in serving Christ. Paul suffers greatly for the gospel, He does so because it'll be of benefit to God's people. He does so because in it, he looks like Christ. And he fills up the afflictions of Christ by continuing to do and to live in a way that would reflect the very life of Christ. One that isn't always liked. One that isn't always appreciated. One that is often mocked. Paul is willing to do all that And Paul is willing to rejoice in that because he understands who's called him to it. Look at verse 25. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I do this for the sake of the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Why is Paul willing to suffer in this way for God's people. Why is Paul willing to suffer in this way for God? It's not because he chose to. It's not even because he wanted to. Look at the words there in verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given up to him. Paul didn't choose this. Do you remember the scene in Acts where Paul was headed and what Paul wanted? Paul was on the road to Damascus and Paul was looking to destroy the church and to destroy the gospel. Paul wanted nothing better but to stamp out the name of Jesus. And so Paul wasn't looking for this life. This wasn't the trajectory of where he was headed. 
But Paul's life was radically changed. On that road, Paul came face to face with the risen Jesus. And from then on, Paul's life was set on a different course. Paul's life was set then to become a minister of the very thing that he sought to stamp out. He became a minister because God made him one. He he grew to love suffering for Christ because he grew to know Christ. He understood Christ. He saw Christ and he was commissioned by Christ. Friends, when we suffer for Jesus, it isn't simply because we want to. None of us would want that. However, Jesus has called us to our particular task. And in doing so, that will come. And the way to endure in that is not only to rejoice in what's happening in the lives of others through our ministry, or even to recognize simply that we reflect the life of Christ in that, but it's to remember who's called us to that. This is what Paul sees here, and it is a privilege for him. We note that even in the way that Paul describes himself, and the way that Paul describes this calling, Paul has a privilege to serve God. He calls it a stewardship. Now, Paul's an apostle, which means that of all the Christians that have ever existed, Paul is up there. He's like one of the best of the best. He was commissioned to a very unique ministry, a very unique task to do work that none of us have been called to do. But it's interesting that here, Paul doesn't work with that in mind. Paul uses this idea of stewardship. It's this idea of someone who's a servant and probably even more so someone who's a slave. This is how Paul regards himself. Paul doesn't think of himself before God in these lofty manners. Paul thinks of himself before God as nothing more than a slave. And we recognize this throughout the book of Romans. Paul talks so much of how he's been freed from his slavery to sin and to the world and to his flesh. And he's been freed up now to be a slave to Christ. And so this is a reminder to us that all of us are slaves to something. The question is, have you been freed from your slavery to self to be now a slave for Jesus? Have you been freed to live now for Christ fully and without shame in the same way that we often live for ourselves? Paul did that, and it's because he understood that freedom he had in Christ that he recognized the privilege it was to serve him. Paul was freed from himself, freed from his plan, a futile plan to try to destroy the gospel, to now instead live for the gospel, share the gospel, declare the gospel, and watch it work in the lives of God's people. It was a privilege for him to serve Christ. Not only that, but in it, Paul recognized that there was much benefit that would come to him and to the church. And so here he says his mission was to make the word of God fully known. How was Paul to serve Christ? How was he to show Christ that he wanted to honor him and live for him? Well, he did so by making God fully known to God's people. And in it, we find, in these next verses, we find the most beautiful truth that comes from a life like Paul's. What happens when you give your life to Jesus? 
in a way where nothing is too great for, him, for you to give up for him, where, where everything is on the table for him? What's it like when you're willing to suffer for the sake of Christ and for God's people? What's at stake there and what good comes from it? Well, as God's word is made fully known, read with me in verse 26. The mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to his saints. And to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Thirdly here, I want us to see the reward that comes from knowing Christ. The reward in knowing Christ. Paul understands the privilege it is to serve God. And Paul authenticates that by suffering for God. Paul's mission throughout is that Christ would dwell with his people. He talks about it as a mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations, but now is revealed. It's kind of like a baby that you don't see for nine months. And then fully and finally, one day, you get to hold her in your arms and rejoice. What is that treasure of the gospel? Notice with me in verse 27, God has given this mystery up. He's revealed it to his saints. It's been made known. But Paul takes it a step further. I think if you were to look at John 1.18, you'd see that what Jesus does is he reveals God, right? He explains God. He, he shows us who God is. That's part of the mystery. Paul takes this another step further here in verse 27. Not only is it Christ, the Gentiles now have the riches of the glory of this mystery, but it isn't just Christ. It's Christ in you. Here is the beauty of the gospel. Here's what Paul has been aiming at. It's not simply to show you Christ, but it's to demonstrate to you and to explain to you that as you've received him, Christ is now yours. I'm reminded of the scene that's set for us in Luke chapter 19. Why don't you turn there for a second? In Luke 19, we meet a a wee little man. His name is Ezra. No, his name is Zacchaeus. In Luke 19, we, we meet a man named Zacchaeus. And I think it's fascinating how this passage works itself out. It lends itself for us to be a portrait of even what Paul is aiming at. Here Jesus enters into Jericho, Luke 19, verse 1, and as he's passing through, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Verse 3, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. He was short. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Do you see what just happened there? 
This is actually the only account in which where Jesus isn't invited over, but Jesus invites himself. I don't know if you have a friend like that who just invites himself to your place or she just invites herself to your place unannounced. Um, We've had it a lot this last week, and um, it's always a little bit scary. It's all good. I mean, I just, Nemo runs around in diapers, and sometimes he doesn't. So you just got to be sure the guy is ready to go. It's a scary thought for someone to just invite themselves in. It's the very thing Jesus does here for Zacchaeus. He invites himself into his home. It's the work that Christ is doing for us. Jesus has this intentional idea of redemption, and it's not just one of being made greatest of all so that you can behold him and just view him as transcendent. No, it's so that you would recognize that the Jesus who is transcendent and the Jesus who is great has invited himself to dwell in you. Here he invites himself to dwell in the home of Zacchaeus. In John 14, 23 We see these words that tell us of what Jesus is at work in doing in us. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus is looking to take up residence in you. It's not enough for you to think that Jesus is a cool guy. It's not enough for you to think that, yeah, Jesus did some really amazing things. It's not enough even for you you to be emotionally stirred about all the things that Jesus has done for you. That's not what Jesus is at work doing. Those things have been done, yes. Jesus did miracles. Jesus could heal the blind. Jesus could turn loaves of bread into tons of loaves of bread, and he could turn little fish into many fish. Jesus redeems you, yes. But those who are truly saved... Those who truly know Christ, he now dwells in them. This is what God is at work doing through his son. He has made known the mystery hidden for ages. What was often not understood and what was for so long not understood was not only that the Messiah would come, but that the Messiah would dwell with his people. Christ is yours, not only one day when you get to heaven, but he is yours now. This is what Paul is at work at in the lives of these people. And why would he care so much about that? Because that's the only hope you have. I think so many of us expect to get to heaven and for Jesus to welcome us with open arms. But do you understand that Matthew 7 when, when we see that portrait, that desperate portrait of that person declaring, Lord, Lord, and Jesus saying, I never knew you. Do you understand what that means? You won't have him then because you don't have him now. Paul labors so much for this church because he desires for you to have Christ in eternity. Absolutely. But he wants you to be assured of that eternity by Christ's presence in you now. How do you know that you're someone in whom Jesus dwells? How do I know that my life has been given to Christ in this way, that Christ now abides in me? 
Well, you're given to a life just like Paul's. You make much of Christ's word. You are commissioned by Christ to do great things for him. And you give yourself to those things regardless of what would come of your life. Your life is now in the background. Christ's life is now preeminent. You no longer are the priority. Jesus is the priority. He's the priority in your family. He's your priority in your relationships with friends. He's your priority as you study. He's your priority as you are the greatest athlete of all time. He's your priority as you make friends and as you choose who those people will be in your life. He's your priority as you think about what you're going to be one day, what you're going to do if you're going to be an astronaut or a second grade teacher. He's your priority as you pick a spouse. He's your priority as you buy a house. He's your priority when you sit with a mouse, I guess. But all of your life has one priority, and it is now Jesus. Your life belongs to him because now he dwells in you. This is the reward in knowing Christ. I'm going to go quickly through the end of this chapter. Look at me with me at our fourth point here, purpose in proclaiming Christ. Paul's aim in ministry has been to make much of Christ. And it's because Paul is focused. And Paul recognizes that he has been commissioned by God to do work for God, for the people of God. And it's hard to do that when you lose focus. And so Paul is calling us back to focus on this reality that Christ is in us. That he is our only hope of glory. And in verse 28, he makes it that much more simple for us by saying, Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. You want to boil down what ministry looks like? You even want to boil down what your life should look like? It should be one that proclaims Christ. We don't have competing interests here. And I know that there's so many things that we could talk about in the church And there's many things that we do talk about in the church. But all the things going on around us, social justice, pandemics, cultural warfare, all the kind of stuff that we wrestle with all the time, none of it compares to making much of Jesus. Paul recognizes that if any of this work is to happen in their lives, the priority is to make much more of Christ. The purpose that he has in proclaiming Christ is this. He warns everyone, he teaches everyone with all wisdom so that he would present everyone mature in Christ. Here it's very simple for us to see what it is that Paul desires to both do and what he desires to see. His vision of ministry is simply to make much of Christ. Him we proclaim. When you look at the church and you look at her mission, you understand that it all centers around making Jesus known. You do that by warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom. You declare Christ and you do so unashamedly. And you build people up in Christ, in his word and in his truth. You do so understanding where people are. Some need to be warned and some need to be taught. And you do so for this purpose. 
Why Christ? Why is he at the center? Why is he the priority? So that we would be presented mature in him. Friends, there's a lot of good things that we do in this ministry. And there's a lot of things that we love to do in this ministry. A lot of fun things and a lot of cool things and a lot of fellowshipy things. The priority of this ministry and the priority of this church is that in some measure, we would present each of you to Christ mature. All of you are in a season of life where I think you get that. That you need to grow up. Now, I wrestle with it at home a little bit. We got a six-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a zero-year-old. And the easiest thing to do for my oldest one is to stoop down to everyone else's level. The easiest thing for her to do sometimes is to be as silly as a two-year-old because that's what everyone else seems to be doing. And honestly, I think the same is true for many of you. You use the reality that you're 13, 14, 15, 16 as a crutch to say, well, I can be immature because this is the stage of life that I'm in. What would it be like if you were so countercultural that you, in the power of the grace of God that has been worked in you, stopped stepping down to everyone else's level but started living up to the standard that is Christ? What if you stopped using your immaturity as the basis for you continuing to struggle with sin, continuing to fall into the same bad habits, continuing to do the same things that you've been doing for years that dishonor God and dishonor your parents? And instead of using their station of life that you're at as a crutch, you used it as an opportunity to see, I need to live up to being like Christ. What if that was your life? What if that was you? The reason that we make much of Jesus is so that you would see your standard is not each other. Your standard is not even your small group leader. Your standard is not your shepherds, and your standard is most assuredly not me. Your standard is him whom we proclaim, Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, the one who gave his life for you the one who was sinless and righteous and holy. That's the standard. Him we proclaim so that you might be presented mature back to him. That's the purpose of making much of Jesus. How do we have any assurance that that's possible? Well, it's here for us in this last verse and this final point, number five, the power in laboring for Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Do you see what Paul says there? Amidst all this work that Paul puts in, all this suffering that Paul endures, all these afflictions that Paul adds to the name of Jesus for the sake of his church, he does all of that to present a church that is mature and ultimately to get none of the credit for it. I toil struggling with all my energy is not what it says. I toil struggling 
with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. If the church has any hope, if the church has any assurance, if you have any hope, if you have any assurance that Christ is in you, that he is yours and that you are his, it is in these words. It's his energy powerfully at work in you. You can stop trying and you can start depending. You can stop wrestling and you can start giving your life up to him. You can watch God at work in you. It's far better than you at work in yourself. That's Paul's message. And Paul's message is one that's authenticated by his own life. That this man who was set out to stamp out the church is now at work suffering for Christ because his life has been changed. He knows it's not his own work that's done that. He knows it's Christ at work in him so that the church would have a hope. That's the same message for you. In your life, if you are to be assured that Christ is in you, then you must depend on him. And if you're going to go and you're going to model Paul in the way that he gives himself up to serving Christ with no shame and with no reservations, then not only is that work up to your effort, it's up to you depending on Christ to do it in others. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We pray that this morning you would help us depend much on you, recognizing that you belong to us and we belong to you. Thank you, Father, that your grace is sufficient to lead us through anything that would come uh, for the name of Christ, any suffering or any trial, any tribulation that would come from knowing Christ and from making much of him. It's all worth it because of who Christ is and what Christ has promised. And it isn't only that Christ is in us now. It isn't only that Christ will bring us safely home one day. It's that even now, as we suffer and as we labor, Christ is at work in us. We thank you for this truth, and we pray in your name. Amen.